0: Well, there was a policeman who was watching a little boy furiously ride his bike around the block, and after seeing this boy circle the block several times at a high rate of speed, the officer was curious. So he walks over, he uh, waits for the little boy to come around, and he says, son, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm running away from home. And the policeman said, well, if you're running away from home, why do you keep going around the block? And the boy responded, because my parents said, I'm not allowed to cross the street. (laughs) Now, you might have heard that joke before, but I'm wondering if you've ever thought about something it teaches us, which is that obedience will keep you close to those who love you. Obedience will keep you close to those who love you. And as we continue in our series in the book of Judges today, what we're going to see is the nation of Israel was going around and around in circles, Uh, But unfortunately, they were not staying close to the God who loved them because what we have seen so far and will continue to see is the nation was being disobedient. And so it was actually causing them to leave the Lord and pursue the pagan gods of the land. I invite you to look with me now in your Bible at Judges chapter 2 where I want to pick up where we left off last time. Last week, you'll recall in verses 1 through 5 of Judges 2, what we saw is that God came to his people with an indictment. God said they had failed to fulfill the covenant they had made with him. That covenant is what we find mentioned in Judges 2, 6, when we read, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went into, went each to his inheritance to possess the land. God said, I will give you this land. Now this, what we're reading there in verse 6 is actually a flashback to Joshua chapter 24. If you look at Joshua 24, you see the nation was gathered together at Shechem, and where joshua twenty four one says they presented themselves before God, they were preparing to go in and take the rest of the land. God had brought them through some initial victories, they had crossed over, they were there in the land, and as they were preparing to continue the the, the conquest of the land, Joshua wants to remind the people of God and his faithfulness. He goes all the way back, starting with Abraham, He takes them through god 's uh, covenants and faithfulness with Isaac and Jacob. He reminds the people how God had brought. Uh, their forefathers out of slavery in Egypt, how God had defeated Pharaoh and his army and brought them through the Red Sea. Then he says there was this miraculous crossing of the Jordan River at flood stage. The walls of Jericho came crashing down because of what God did. And he's reminding them of all these victories as God has been driving out their enemies. And when he finishes, he says, God has been faithful. And then he asks the people a question. Will we, will you be faithful to follow God? And the people's response in Joshua 24, 16 is where they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Now, as you continue reading there in Joshua 24, you see that Joshua, uh, the people promised to be faithful, and Joshua presses them on this. He says in verses 19 through 24, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, Joshua says, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So this is the final charge that Joshua gave to the nation before he dies. His death is recorded there in Joshua 24. And we see it repeated again here in Judges 2, 7 through 9. It says, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of a hundred and ten. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timna Ares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaesh. So what we find here is an obituary for Joshua. And it could have highlighted num- a number of things. It could have said, Joshua, who led the nation. Joshua, the general who defeated 31 foreign uh, kings. But instead of those things, what's said to sum up his life is Joshua, the servant of the Lord. When his life was over, those other things didn't matter. What mattered was his faith and relationship with the Lord. And I want you to think for a moment about your own life. I want you to think about how you're living, and, and imagine for a moment that your life were to come to an end, and the person comes in and says to you, uh, what is the epitaph you want on your tombstone? What is it that you want your life summed up? What is it you want to be remembered by? And as you think in terms of that, I'll tell you as a pastor, I've, I've read more epitaphs than I can... I can tell you, in 25 years of going to bury uh, people in cemeteries, I've walked around and read uh, thousands, literally, of tombstones. And I can tell you there has never been a tombstone that I've looked at that the epitaph said, uh, my GPA was this, uh, my class ranking was such and such. I've never seen one that said salesman of the year or lettered in three sports I've never seen a tombstone that said president or CEO of such and such company. None of those things are listed on people's tombstones because in the end, they just don't matter, do they? Do you know what the number one things you will find listed on tombstones? It's relationships. It'll say mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter. And the relationship that matters most in the end is whether or not we knew the Lord, and you will see that on there, follower of Christ, believer in Jesus. Joshua was one who had lived his life for the Lord, and by doing so, he affected those around him just as you can. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't have to be the leader of a nation of millions like Joshua was. You can impact the people that God has brought into your world as you go to school and you see your classmates. It can be the person who works at the desk or the cubicle next to you or there at the base where you're serving. God has given us influence in our neighborhoods with those who live around us. If you are a parent or a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, uh, somebody who is able to just talk to others in your home, you have the ability to influence other people for Christ. The Jewish Talmud says, when you teach your son, you teach your son's son. When you teach your son, you teach your son's son. As you think about your life and the message you're leaving, what are the generations that will follow you, learning from you? Will others who come after you know the Lord? Or will we be like what we see in Judges 2.10, where it says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. In one generation, Israel had gone from being followers of the Lord to forsaking the Lord. I want you to think about the time in which we live right now. What, what does the day and age look like to us? As you think about our generation and you think back just a generation ago, what, what is different in our country and in our world than it was a generation ago? As I was considering that question myself, I thought about uh, a TV show that had been canceled. Maybe you've heard of Ellen DeGeneres. Now, uh, her, her latest sitcom was canceled, the show named after her. But what some of you may not know is she had another TV show that was canceled back in 1997. And back in 1996, Ellen was uh, the main character in a, in a sitcom, and she decided she wanted to come out on the show uh, as being a lesbian. And the the writers worked with her, and they crafted the the storyline. And in 1996, she came out as a lesbian, uh, not only in real life, but also on her TV show. And the ratings for the show began to plummet, and by 1997, ABC pulled the plug and canceled her show. Now, Ellen was angry, and she criticized Robert Iger, who at the time was president and CEO of Disney, which controlled ABC, the network hosting the show. And Robert Iger said of the criticism, uh, this is unfair because the ABC network has been unbelievably supportive of the sitcom's efforts in increasing people's tolerance of homosexuals. Tim Doyle, who was the executive producer and head writer for the canceled show, said this, America was not yet ready uh, for the normalization of homosexuality on primetime TV. But, he said, There's hope for the future. It's hard to blaze a trail and progress is slow, but there is a whole generation that has now grown up with homosexuality and doesn't think it's so extraordinary. Now listen to this line. There's a group of older people who will never accept it, but there's a lot of empty cemeteries, and when they're filled, the world will be more tolerant. Now as I mention homosexuality here, I want you to hear this clearly. I'm not blaming all the problems in our country on homosexuality. And when I use the word homosexuality, I'm talking about the entire LGBTQ movement. I'm not blaming this. I'm not gay bashing here either. And I'm not telling you I wish everything was like it was 24 years ago. I have to tell you that as a a Christian, uh, there is a lot of harm that believers have done in the way we have gay bashed in the past. There's been a lot of... Uh, hateful language, and lack of love. And I'm glad some of that has changed. Some in the church who have claimed to represent Christ have been wrong in how they've spoken to those who are in the LGBT lifestyle. A few years ago, uh, after services, you know, I stand up here and people come up to talk to me, and there were two ladies who came up after a service. And they said, uh, they said this is our first Sunday here, and, and we want to know, is Wayside a Welcoming Church? Now, their question was not, are we a friendly church? Welcoming is a, is a code word for uh, are we supportive of the LGBTQ movement? Are we a church that affirms and all, all the various things, same-sex marriage and other things? And I said to these ladies, I started out by saying why, I hope that you found your time with us at Wayside this morning encouraging. I hope that our people here were friendly and welcoming to you. And one of the two ladies was kind of shifting around. She kind of had an angry look on her face, kind of like, would you answer the question? And uh, then I said to her, I said, I believe you two came to Wayside this morning to our church because you wanted to hear what the Bible says. I said, I can promise you that when you come to Wayside, you will hear what the word of God says. I will always preach from the scriptures. And I said, when it comes to to sexual sin, I said, that is all-inclusive. It is not just the LGBT movement. Uh, The Bible says that God designed sex. He is the one who gave it to us as a gift. And God has a particular design for sex. In his word, he says that he has created it for one man and one woman to be in a loving, monogamous relationship. And I said, sexual sin is sexual sin. And I said, I have to tell you, as a heterosexual man, there are times I commit sexual sin. I said, if I lust after a woman who is not my wife, and at the time I've been married over 30 years, I said, then I am guilty of sexual sin. And I said, if there is a heterosexual man, if there is a heterosexual woman who is having sex outside of a covenant relationship, they are in sin. And I said, homosexual sin is also a sin. And I said, I promise you, you will hear me preach what the word of God says. I will never cherry pick I will never gay bash. I will never focus and say uh, homosexuality and this is a sin and not talk about heterosexual sin in the same uh, set of comments. And as I shared that with them, they looked at each other, uh, they whispered back and forth, and then they said, we're okay with that. And I've seen these ladies continue to come uh, since that time. And I know there are a number of other individuals and couples here that are in the LGBT movement. And I want to say, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you're with us. I'm glad that you're here to hear what God's word says. And as I said, I'm not focusing just on the sin of homosexuality. When you look at our country, uh, abortion is another place where our nation has moved away from God in its standards. And when it comes to homosexuality or abortion, uh, another thing that we need to understand, believers in Christ, is we're not to throw rocks and condemn sinners. We're to show God's love. When the Bible tells us to speak the truth in love, uh, we see a model of that when Jesus confronted the woman caught in adultery. Everybody was there to stone her to death, and as Christ confronted their individual sins, he was left with her. And and he looked around and he said, Woman, is there anyone left to condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And then he said, neither do I condemn you. Now listen, he didn't condone her sin. What he then called her to was repentance and to walk with God. He said, go and sin no more. And that's what the Bible calls us to do. Uh, Not to condemn the sinner, but to call them to repentance. When it comes to those who have dealt with abortion, we provide avenues to help women. Hopefully to, to head off, an abortion that could happen. Uh, we support pro-life ministries here in our city. Uh, we are partners uh, financially and otherwise with pregnancy care centers. Uh, we help women who are in, in situations that they find themselves. Uh, I will tell you if you are a person here or online in an unplanned pregnancy and you're not sure what to do and you don't want to keep your child, I know literally uh, numerous families that will adopt your child today. And so we advocate for adoption. We advocate for foster uh, families here at our church. We help women who have made the tragic decision to have an abortion. We have a post-abortive ministry here called Redeemed and Restored. Uh, Men, you don't know about this because the brochures are in the stalls in the women's restrooms. And ladies, uh, that ministry, Redeemed and Restored, is led by women at Wayside who have had an abortion themselves who have found God's healing and forgiveness, and they want you to know uh, that God offers you healing and forgiveness as well. It's a confidential ministry where you will meet with these ladies, and they will walk you through multiple weeks uh, to, to help you find hope and healing uh, post-abortive. As we talk about these things, as we talk about how our nation has abandoned God's standard, listen to what has happened in just over 100 years, roughly, Uh, with abortion in America. In 1859, the American Medical Association defined abortion this way. It is the slaughter of countless children, no mere misdemeanor, no attempt on the life of the mother, but the wanton and murderous destruction of her child, such unwarranted destruction of human life. In 1870, the American Medical Association defined those who commit abortions, the abortionists, as men who cling to an honorable profession only to dishonor it. False brethren, uneducated assassins, these modern Herods, these men who corrupt hearts and bloodstained hands, destroy what they cannot reinstate. Corrupt souls, and de- who, They corrupt souls and destroy the fairest fabric that God has ever created under the cloak of the medical profession. These are doctors speaking of other doctors. In 1967, the AMA had defined abortion as the interruption of an unwanted pregnancy. And by 1970, abortion was simply termed a medical procedure. When we read here another generation arose who did not know the Lord, this is the times in which we live. When it says no here, I want you to understand this isn't a word that that describes just an intellectual knowledge of God. You can say, well, people know God. To know God here uh, literally means to acknowledge God. It means you not only agree with who he is and what he says, but you go the next step and you live the way that he calls us to. That's what it means. It's what we find in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 where we're told, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge, there's our word again, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. The generation we're reading about here knew who the Lord was. They had heard the stories of all that God had done. They had even seen the faithfulness of God firsthand, but they chose to do what they wanted rather than what God wanted. Judges two eleven through 13 tells us, "...then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and the Ashtoreth." Now, Baal was the, the chief pagan god of the Canaanites, he, he was believed to have reproductive powers. He was the one that was supposed to be in control of the rain that would fall uh, on on the earth. So he was in charge of reproduction and, and fertility. And you'll notice in verse 11 that Baal is plural there. And the reason for that is even though he was supposed to be the, the primary most powerful god, uh, they said he was limited in his ability. He was kind of like a little regional god, unlike the God of heaven who's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere. Baal could only be in like little cities. It's why as you read through the Bible, uh, you'll you'll see uh, Baal Peor, which is the the God of that city, Peor. Baal Barith, another city. Baal, Baal Zebub, and so on. Each city had to have their own mini-God. So it would be the Baal of San Antonio, the Baal of, uh, you know, Austin, the Baal of Dallas. And... Ashtoreth was the moon goddess. She was the counterpart. She also had different names. She's called Ishtar in Babylon or Anath, as we saw back in Judges 133. When we get to Judges 625, what we're going to see is Gideon was told to cut down the Asherah, which were the physical representations of her. They would put up uh, a large pole high up on a hill, and so Gideon was told to come in and cut down uh, this, this you know pole they were using to worship her. Now, I'm sorry to be graphic here, parents, if you want to cover the ears of your little ones, this will pass quickly, but I, I want to explain how they worshipped uh, these pagan gods. You read in the Bible about temple prostitution, and the the reason, remember they said Baal was this fertility god. He controlled the rain. Here's where you want to cover their ears, possibly, parents. Uh, so what would happen is they would they would say that these two gods would have sex and the semen from copulation would be the rain that would fall on the earth and, and water the earth. Now, again, we're talking about these gods, but the people said, well, they're so dumb, they don't know how to do this themselves. So temple prostitution was designed where uh, human men and women would emulate, would, would copy this uh, copulation by actually having sex at the altar and the gods would see this and it was supposed to drive them to do it themselves. You can uncover ears now. Um, So, this is the depravity that is taking place. When when we read here about the Israelites being drawn into the the worship of these pagan gods, it's why verse 12 says, They provoked the Lord to anger. There's a little book called Children's Letters to God, and uh, in it there's a little girl by the name of Jane, and she says, Dear God, what does it mean that you're a jealous God? I thought you had everything. I don't know about you, but sometimes you'll read in the Bible where God is jealous or angry, and you think, well, is he petty? I mean, is, is that really the God we serve where, you know, he gets his feelings hurt? Friends, what we're reading about here is God's jealousy is a righteous response of a holy God to sin. When he's angry here, it's because of the unfaithfulness of his people. I want you to put your pla- yourself in the place of God for a moment. Uh, if you're a person who is married... Imagine that your husband or wife is being unfaithful to you. Would you be jealous? Would you be angry? Well, that's what's happening here. Uh, God had made a covenant with Israel. He said, you are my people. The the scriptures uh, show us the picture of Jesus and the church being the bride of Christ. The, The name Baal literally means owner or husband. And so what we're reading here is how Israel had traded Uh, their faith and their faithfulness to God who had protected them, who had provided for them, who loved and cared for them to go off and, and play the harlot with this false husband. Verse 10 says they had forgotten God and his commandments. One of the commandments you'll recall is that Exodus 20 says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Friends, God demands and deserves exclusive worship. There's not a person here who would share your spouse with another person, so why do we expect God to do that with us? God says, you are my people. I purchased you. I bought you. I, I, I love you. I care for you. And he says, you are to be faithful to me. And yet some are running around chasing the gods and the things of the world. Now, as you think about idolatry, you may be sitting here saying, well, hey, Pastor Roger, I don't, I don't bow down to wooden idols. I don't have some shrine that I'm worshiping like they did. Uh, I, w- I want you to understand what the definition of worship is. Uh, the word worship literally means to declare the worthship of God. And when we worship something, what it means is we esteem it so highly that it occupies your thoughts and you dev- devote your time, your resources, and your energy to show your devotion. And as you think about uh, worship, And idolatry in terms like that, I want you to ask yourself Has God been set aside for something else that may be getting more of your worship? Now, if I'm going to step on anybody's toes here, I'm sorry because I'm aiming for your heart. But I want you to think about a piece of wood. If you're a person who owns a hunting rifle or a shotgun, uh, is that getting all of your time and devotion? Now, i got to talk to myself here, right? I love the outdoors and fishing and hunting and things. But uh, when hunting season comes, does that become the sole thought in your mind? Uh, the first church I pastored was a little country church called Country Bible. And when the opening day of deer season came in, it looked like the rapture had happened. There was like <laughs> nobody left in the church. And, uh, you know, so as you think about it, are you worshiping some wooden stock, so to speak? It it could be the wood grain on a car that you you clean and polish and, and take care of. It might be a musical instrument. It could be your home. It could be a garden, your lawn. I mean, you think in terms of it. For some of us, the bail that we bow down to is a bank balance or it's a portfolio. What is it that is getting your time, your energy your devotion? Is there something that is getting more of your thought and resources uh, rather than passionately pursuing God? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will hold on to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon it means money. Israel had started to share themselves with the world. And as they did so, they fell into sin, and this sin led to slavery. God says, "You want to serve the gods of the world? You want to chase after the stuff of the world? Fine, then go be a slave to those things." Judges two fourteen through fifteen says, "And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. They're in slavery." Whenever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. As we go through the book of Judges, we're going to see this cycle of sin to slavery seven times over and over And as the Jews experience this consequence of slavery, they will turn to God in supplication, a word that means prayer. They will cry out uh, to God. This is what we see in verse 18. God is moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. And God will then, there will be salvation as God delivers his people. He raises up a judge, as we see in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Now, when you hear this word judge or judges, uh, many of us will picture a a man or a woman in a black robe seated up on a judicial bench with a gavel in their hand. And while judges at times oversaw court cases and disputes and made rulings, uh, the judges we're talking about here uh, were military deliverers. The root of the word literally means to save, to rescue. It's why when Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they said, we're waiting for a military redeemer. We're waiting for somebody to come in and overthrow Rome militarily. They wanted this person to save or rescue them uh, from the oppression. And this is what these Old Testament judges were doing. They were empowered by God to save the people from their pagan oppressors by freeing them militarily, as we'll see as we go through this series. And when the people were freed, there was a time of silence. There was this rest in the land where they were able to to be at peace and rest as they uh, stayed close to God. But then the people would fall back into their previous pattern of sin again. And this cycle repeats itself. Verses 17 through 19 tell us, And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods, and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about, When the judge died, that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. In following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. It tells us as the people go back into this cycle of sin, each time it got deeper in depravity, it got worse and worse. uh, As verse 19 said, We see in verses 22 through 23, so the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed these nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them uh, into the hand of Joshua. Now, the Hebrew word used here for nation is goi. Uh, you've probably heard Gentiles called the goiim. Im is the plural, uh, so it can be one or, or multiplicity of nations. And it's used throughout scriptures, typically, of the Gentiles. But here, as God is talking about Israel, He says in verse 20, he calls Israel the hagoi hazei, literally this nation. He says, "My, my people, the Jews, are living like the Gentiles. My covenant people are acting as if they don't belong to me. So he says, that's who you are. As Israel once again chose to walk away from God, he could have said, you know what, we're done, we're done. I have a friend who's a pastor, his name's Gary Enrig, and he he says, God could have destroyed the people and the angels in heaven would would have kept on singing their eternal song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Friends, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need Israel to worship him. He has those falling down around the throne right now worshiping him. But he loves us and, and he wants us with him for all eternity. As you think in terms of what we're reading, remember he is a holy God. He is a God of justice. Justice is a term that we can define as getting what you deserve. And justice here is God says you're getting what you deserve. You wanted to turn from following me to the pagan gods of the world. You want them to take care of you, so serve them. And they end up in slavery, and God could have said that's what you deserve. But another part of God's character is his mercy, his grace, his love. And here those things compel the Lord to reach out and redeem his wayward people. And friends, he's done that for us in our day. We read in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Every single one of us here is a sinner. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, from the pastor in the pulpit to the people in the seats. And God says we're all sinners. Romans 3.10 tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. And because of that, we are all deserving of judgment. Justice is we get what we deserve, eternal separation from God. But then we see his mercy, his love, his grace. As Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, that's separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Getting what we deserve would be separation from God for all eternity. But those who come to faith in Christ uh, see his mercy and grace. Mercy is defined as getting what we don't deserve. And grace, I'm sorry, mercy is getting not getting what we deserve. So at best, it would just be God says, you die and that's it, you disappear. But we, we don't disappear when our life on earth is over. We are made in the image of God. We are eternal. There's a Greek word, Ionius. Uh, that speaks of eternal life, and it's also the word that speaks of eternal judgment. We live forever because we are created in the eternal uh, image of God. And so we will either be with God for all eternity or we will be separated from God for all eternity. The same word is used in both places. And so mercy is defined as not getting what we deserve while grace is getting what we don't deserve. What we don't deserve is to be adopted as sons and daughters of God, to be welcomed into the family, to be with God in heaven. And yet Ephesians 2.8.9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. As you think about these things, I want you to look at this slide again. And I want, to, I want you to ask yourself, where are you in this cycle? We can all start there at the top and say we're sinners. Remember, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us fits that top category as being a sinner. Now, some of us today find ourselves in a place of slavery, where we're we're a slave to some of our sinful addictions, where we're uh, a slave to the consequences of some bad choices we've made in the past. And God has us there not because he likes to punish us, God has us there, friends, because he's trying to drive us back to himself. It's what he was trying to do with Israel. It's what he's trying to do with us. Hebrews twelve eleven tells us, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God says, I don't want to leave you in slavery. I want to have you cry out in repentance. I want you to come to me and experience salvation. And as you come to my son, Jesus, who is the Savior, not, not a military one, but the, the Savior over death for all eternity. He says, once you come to salvation, there will be a period of rest in your life and for all eternity in heaven with me. C.S. Lewis once remarked, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If you find yourself this morning in a place of suffering because of your sin, God is trying to wake you up. As we look at the world in which we live that is broken and falling apart, God is trying to drive us. Uh, not only America, but the rest of the world back to himself. As a nation, as individuals, God is calling us to turn to him or face the consequences that come when we reject him. And God has raised up a savior for us, his son Jesus, who went to the cross to die and pay the penalty of death that we owe for our sins. And if you're here this morning or worshiping with us online and you've never come to faith in Christ, I invite you today to recognize your need for a savior and to cry out in repentance, to turn to God and say, I'm a sinner and I'm deserving of your judgment. But I thank you, God, that you came, you gave your son Jesus to be the savior, the redeemer, to die in my place, to pay that penalty of death that I owe for my sins. Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. If you've never taken that step of faith, I invite you to do so now to recognize your need for a savior, to say to God this morning, God, I'm a sinner and I recognize I'm deserving of that penalty of death But I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to be the payment in my place, to die. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, Romans 6.23 said. Jesus paid the penalty you owe and I owed for our sins. And he says, when you accept his death in your place, when you cry out to him in supplication and repentance, turning to Christ, then you will be saved. So if you've never done so, I invite you to do so today. For many of us, we've taken that step in the past. But maybe we find ourselves in that time of slavery and discipline again because we have not been living as we should. And again, God is saying to us, turn back to me. Cry out in repentance. Come to me. 1 John nine says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's speaking to the believer. And so as we go to God in prayer now, I want you just to look at your life, to take a few moments to assess where you are. And if you've never come to faith in Christ and today you're ready to receive his gift of grace and new life, ask Jesus to be your savior. And for the rest of us, confess whatever sins we've committed. And if you're saying right now, I'm walking with God, things are good, then confess the sins of our nation, confess the sins of our world and cry out and ask for God's mercy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, as we look at your word today, it's hard. It's hard to look at. It's hard to hear things like judgment and, and condemnation for and consequences that come with our sins. But God, you are not a God who came to condemn the world but to save the world. You sent your son Jesus to be our Savior. And you desire all of us to turn to you. And this morning I pray, God, if there's anyone listening who's not yet taken that step of faith, that today would be the day where they say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I recognize who you are, the Son of God who came and took my place on the cross, who shed your blood to wash away my sins. And today, Jesus, I accept by faith that gift of grace. Thank you for washing away my sins. Thank you for making me a part of your family today. God, for others of us, we've come to faith in you in the past, but God, we've we've gone our own way, we've turned our back on you. We've been flirting with the world and uh, worshiping and chasing the things that are not of you, and and today, God, we confess that. We acknowledge that we've not been living as we should, we've lost our first love, and today, God, we ask that you would draw us back to yourself. You would help us to to walk with you. God, as we look at what's happening in our world, uh, the world is broken. It's deserving of judgment. It's falling apart, and we see that. Romans tells us that the, the world, the creation itself, is groaning out, waiting for that day of redemption. And, God, we see that in Haiti, as there are earthquakes and, and disasters that are happening. And, God, that is a nation that years ago turned its back on you and went to, to voodoo and witchcraft and other things as a whole. We know there are your people there as well, followers of Christ who are faithful. But, God, is a nation... Uh, They need you. They need to come to you. And we ask for your mercy and grace. We ask for your provision uh, for those who right now are suffering without homes and food and and basic resources. God, we pray for Afghanistan and what's happening there. We know uh, it's a predominantly Muslim country that has not yet acknowledged you, but there are believers there. There are underground churches. Uh, There are those who are faithful followers of you. And right now, God, they're being hunted. Uh, they're being martyred, and, and we know God, you're, you're powerful. You can protect your people, and we ask God that you would do that, that you would surround them. But we, we also know and, and see in Revelation where there are martyrs who are under the throne, and they ask you, God, how long? How long will you allow this to happen? And and you say the time is not yet complete. And so, God, we pray for those believers, some who even now may be facing. Uh, the call to turn their back on you or die. And we ask God that you would strengthen them, that you would keep them faithful, that like Stephen who was stoned would would see you in heaven and they would hold on to their faith, knowing that Second Corinthians five eight says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We pray for your mercy and grace for those believers who are there. God, we pray for our leadership, for President Biden, for Vice President Harris. God, they need you. They need your wisdom. Uh, They need courage. You call on us as believers to pray for those who are in authority and leadership. And so, God, we ask that you would give to them what they need, that you would help them to make good and righteous decisions. Would you raise up advisors and others to step into the void and, and help all that's happening in the world? God, thank you for your son. Thank you for giving us the gift of new and eternal life. Thank you for the charge you've given us to be your messengers uh, with a message of hope and light in a dark and dying and desperate world. So would we be faithful to follow you and go into the world and share the good news of who you are and what you've done. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.